Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Congressional Democrats try yet again to rev up renewable energy to fight climate change, boost jobs, and the economy. There are millions of dollars at stake, uh, many thousands of jobs. Our estimate is that if the credit is not extended between the wind industry and the solar industry, we see 116,000 jobs in the U.S. at stake. Also, sampling whale blubber. You, you understand your place in the wild world when you study whales. You know, we all think it's all about humanity, and yet you get out on the ocean with some of these whales, eyes the size of a grapefruit, little wrinkles, and they're looking at you saying, you know, you're an intelligent species, look at my lifestyle. Lifestyles of the huge and cetaceous in the polluted oceans. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Congress is about to renew efforts to boost renewable energy. Democratic leaders say they want to repeal subsidies to the oil and gas industry and put that money instead into incentives for clean energy like wind and solar power. Living on Earth's Washington correspondent Jeff Young is plugged into the energy debate, and he's here to tell us what's at stake. Hi there, Jeff. Hi, Steve. Jeff, this sounds awfully familiar. It seems like the Democrats tried this before, right? That's right. The House of Representatives approved an energy bill last year that would take away oil subsidies and support renewable energy. But that fell one vote short in the Senate. Well, then Democratic leaders tried to put incentives for wind and solar in the economic stimulus package. And again, that measure also failed in the Senate by just one vote. Well, now Democrats are hoping the third time's a charm. Well, yes, we think it's very important. We think it should have been passed. And uh, we just don't give up on things because the Senate's not cooperative. That's New York Democrat Charles Rangel. He chairs the powerful House Ways and Means Committee, which has just produced a $17 billion bill to extend tax credits crucial to the solar and wind industries. Randy Swisher directs the American Wind Energy Association. He says those credits are set to expire at the end of the year. This is way too familiar a story, unfortunately. The phenomenal growth in wind power is largely due to the production tax credit, which pays two cents on every kilowatt hour produced by windmills. Swisher says there's generally strong support for the tax credit. So why has it twice failed to win final passage? What has happened both times that this has come to the Senate floor is that it has been caught in the crossfire of much larger political battles. And that could be the case again. Wrangell and House Democrats want to pay for the renewable energy tax credits by repealing oil industry subsidies. The powerful petroleum lobby and oil patch lawmakers will fight that, as they have before, by arguing that the end result will be an increase in gas prices for consumers. Swisher's worried that wind power's growth could stall if the tax credits fail again. There are millions of dollars at stake, uh, many thousands of jobs. Our estimate is that if the credit is not extended, between the wind industry and the solar industry, we see 116,000 jobs in the U.S. at stake. 
There are already companies that are reevaluating whether to make investments in new manufacturing capability. Those kinds of decisions are being made right now. And with every month that goes by, the, the impact will grow. Swisher and others are betting that the flip side of that equation will be a strong selling point to Congress. Growth in renewable energy jobs has been one of the few bright spots in an otherwise dim economic season. Roan Resch is president of the Solar Energy Industries Association. This is a chance for us right now to extend these tax credits and really create a robust industry and, if we, and put people back to work. And, and many of the people who will work in the solar industry are the same people who are being let off by the building industry. Roofers, electricians, plumbers, carpenters. We can give them high-quality jobs in the solar industry right now. The pending bill would extend solar tax credits for up to eight years. Businesses could claim up to 30 percent of the cost of installing solar systems. Homeowners could get up to $4,000 in tax credits for going solar. Resch knows the politics will be tough, but he has a, well, a sunny outlook. This is an election year, and so what I think is different about this vote at this time is that there are many senators who are up for election who represent states that have large renewable energy industries developing. And it's time for those senators to support this legislation and reverse their no vote to a yes vote for renewable energy in the U.S. And Steve, a few key votes to watch on this. Republican John Sununu, who has a lot of solar and wind equipment makers in New Hampshire, but voted against these tax credits last time. And the only Democrat in the Senate to vote against this was Louisiana's Mary Landrieu, who's a big supporter of her home state's oil industry. And both of them face the voters in re-election this year. And Jeff, what about the presidential candidates in the Senate? Uh Well, both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama have voted for renewable energy. Senator John McCain could have made the difference when renewable energy was up for a vote as part of that recently passed uh, economic stimulus package, but he missed the vote. And, of course, it failed by exactly one vote. And uh, now the current occupants of the White House, they're both former oil men. Jeff, I'm going to make a wild guess here and say that they're against this idea of taking away oil industry subsidies. It's, it's like you're clairvoyant. Good guess. In fact, uh, when a similar energy package came up uh, late last year, the White House threatened to veto over that very measure, and they're making similar noises this time. So it is the last year of the Bush administration. Uh, any indications of what the president wants to get done on his way out the door regarding energy? Well, the president uh, just sent his final budget to Congress and generally favors fossil fuels with subsidies for coal. And there's there's one this curious item on oil. The president wants to completely fill up the nation's strategic petroleum reserve. And that's already meeting some some resistance. The strategic reserve, now that's the large underground supply of oil that's kept in case of emergency of some mm-hmm. kind. Um, what's the objection to filling that up? Well, it's already nearly full. And of course, oil is at near record high prices. So if you were to top off that great big tank, so to speak, with oil at 90 or so dollars a barrel, what's really going to cost a lot, something like $500 million. So some key Democrats in Congress are already floating a bill to stop that. They say, well, this might be good for the oil industry to buy their oil when it's at record high prices, but it's not a very good thing for taxpayers or the budget. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff Young is Living on Earth's Washington correspondent. The U.S. scientific community more and more is speaking out about what it sees as improper governmental interference in conducting and disseminating research. The latest call for scientific integrity comes from the American Association for the Advancement of Science at its annual meeting in Boston. 
One case in point is the work of toxicologist Christopher DeRosa at the Centers for Disease Control. First, he came under fire for disclosing that FEMA trailers provided to people displaced by Katrina contain formaldehyde, which is suspected to cause cancer. And now the CDC is refusing to release a report that Dr. DeRosa supervised about cancer rates and other health effects and pollution in contaminated areas around the Great Lakes. He was recently demoted and stripped of supervisory authority. Dr. DeRosa, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Dr. DeRosa, tell me about this Great Lakes study. What kind of substances were people being exposed to uh, in the region? Well, you might imagine it's uh, a range of the usual suspects, Things like dioxin, mercury, alkyl lead, uh, hexachlorobenzene, DDT, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, polychlorinated biphenyls or PCBs, and the list would go on. Let me ask you about the health problems that you found in these 26 areas of concern. In particular, what did you see in terms of cancer and infant mortality, premature birth, that sort of thing? Well, we did see some elevated rates of breast cancer, for example. There were elevated rates in 17 out of 26 of the areas of concern. Colon cancer, there we see 16 areas of concern with elevated rates. And in the case of lung cancer, 12. There are some, also some perinatal effects that we observed. For example, low birth weights in six of the 21 counties. Infant death in 21 of the 26, also deficits in uh, fertility. There were deficits in immune function, uh, which is significant because some of the chemicals such as PCBs do affect the immune system and suppress the immune system. Your agency is declining to release this report. Why? The actual reasons for not doing so have not necessarily been uh, shared with me formally. But I do know that uh, among the terms that have been used are that it may be alarming and that it uh, required further review. Dr. DeRosa, we called the CDC and reached a spokesperson there, Glenn Nowak, and asked him this very question as to why the report wasn't being released. And he had this to say about the quality of the report. There were two or three major concerns. One was that the environmental data that was presented in the report was more recent than the health indicator data. And so if you're trying to look for associations, that should be reversed. Another concern was that the health data that was presented in the report didn't map very well with respect to the areas of concern that were looked at on environmental issues. So the criticism of this by your own agency is, is that this report unfairly correlates areas having high levels of toxic substances and human health problems. But is that fair to say? Do, in fact, you try to make that correlation in this report? No, not at all. In fact, repeatedly, it's stated that that is not the intended purpose of the report. It's simply to give communities ready access to the most recently available information that they've already paid for as taxpayers. You know, on the one hand, we have this report that you work so hard on that the government uh, does not want to release. On the other hand, we have a report that you put together about the effects of formaldehyde coming out of the furnishings inside the FEMA trailers that caused so much consternation when this material got out into the public. And we see your demotion uh, inside the department. It sure looks political to me. Well, you know, the word political to me is, I think it's in Webster 
it's, it refers to as the wise use of power. You know, the, the point being that I was responsible for oversight of a division of 60 to 70 highly trained technical individuals that I've been working with since arriving here at the agency. And uh, I now have no such responsibility. You supervise yourself and the space between your desk and the wastebasket. Well, it really extends over to the door. No, I'm, I'm just being facetious. I do not have any supervisory responsibilities. How do you feel about the government suppressing this report that could be used for uh, neighborhoods, communities, to take steps to protect the health of their citizens? The only thing I could share with you there, Steve, is that what I have stated perhaps to my own detriment, is that I am concerned that there's important health information that is not being shared with the public and that this may have implications for their health. Dr. Christopher DeRosa is the Assistant Director for Toxicology and Risk Analysis at the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry at the Centers for Disease Control. Thank you so much, sir. My pleasure. The CDC says Dr. DeRosa's study is still under review. For more information and to see parts of an unofficial draft of the report obtained by the Center for Public Integrity, go to our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, radical human life extension. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A few weeks ago, we featured music from the Kurzweil synthesizer and a conversation with its creator, Ray Kurzweil. He's a renowned inventor. He's created robots and reading machines for the blind, as well as the synthesizer, and now he's using his knowledge and skills to imagine the future. He explains them in his latest book, The Singularity is Near, When Humans Transcend Biology. Part of that transcendence, he believes, will be a dramatic improvement in human health. As he explained when we visited him in his Kurzweil Technologies office outside of Boston, Massachusetts, that's because he's faced his own health problems, a personal battle with diabetes that set him thinking. I do have an interest, acute interest in health. I developed type 2 diabetes about 20 years ago. Uh, tried the conventional approach, actually made things worse. So I developed my own approach using nutritional supplements and nutrition and lifestyle. Uh, overcame my diabetes. I've had no indication of, of diabetes for the last 20 years. But it did actually, more than just dealing with this one specific health challenge, gave me the idea that we can really overcome our health challenges with the right ideas. And it really put me on this path of really addressing health challenges. So I encountered another health challenge, which was middle age. That's a challenge familiar to many of us, but Ray Kurzweil thinks he's beaten it, with a regimen of dozens of vitamins and nutraceuticals. Now, he may look like he's in his late 50s, but he says, according to blood tests and lab results, his body acts more like it's 40. He's collaborated with physician Terry Grossman on a book to chart the way to extending healthy life. It's called Fantastic Voyage, Live Long Enough to Live Forever. The basic thesis is that there are three bridges to 
dramatically extending our life to radical life extension. And what I've been talking about now is bridge one, using today's knowledge and our knowledge of ourselves to develop a personalized approach to addressing your own health challenges, whatever they may be, to bring us, particularly us baby boomers, in good shape only 10 or 15 years from now, where we'll have bridge two, which is the full flowering of the biotechnology revolution, where we really will have the means of reprogramming our biology. You say, you say this with great confidence. It's not we're likely to, or you, you say this as if it's done already. Well, we actually do have the means of reprogramming the basic principles of our biology. We can turn genes off. That's a new thing. Now, health and medicine has, is transforming from a pre-information era where we really did not have information models of how biology worked. It was really hit or miss. So here's something that lowers blood pressure. We don't know why this works, and there was no theory of operation, and invariably these kinds of drugs had many side effects. The new paradigm is to really understand a disease process and an aging process as a set of information processes and reprogram them. Not that each of these techniques is guaranteed to work, but it's a much more powerful methodology. And the, the really important point comes back to what I said earlier, that now that health and biology and medicine are becoming information technologies, they're subject to what I call the law of accelerating returns, which is this doubling of, of the power of these technologies every year. And you could see it in the Genome Project. The, the amount of genetic material we've sequenced has doubled every year, very smoothly, for the last 15 years. The prices come down by half every year. So things that were not feasible before are becoming quite, quite affordable. And 10, 15 years from now, it's going to be a very different world in our ability to reprogram these information processes. So, information and understanding about how the body functions and the ability to manipulate these processes. Ray Kurzweil says that's the second bridge, the key to better health in the medium term. Next comes bridge three. Bridge three is nanotechnology, the quintessential application uh, I used to say killer app, but people didn't actually like that in the context of health, is nanobots, basically blood cell-sized devices that can go inside the bloodstream and actually perform therapeutic functions inside. By the 2020s, this will be quite routine to send millions or billions of these nanobots, as they're sometimes referred to, to keep us healthy from inside and also go inside our brain and expand our mental functioning. So what kind of lifespan do you expect when these kick online? Ultimately, there's really no reason why they can't reverse any kind of damage that occurs. I mean, how long does a house last? Well, it depends on whether or not you take care of the house. If you have a policy that you're very aggressive, anything goes wrong, you immediately fix it. Occasionally, you upgrade systems like the HVAC. The house can go on indefinitely. In fact, we do have structures that have lasted thousands of years. Now, why doesn't that apply to the house we live in, our bodies? Well, one difference is we understand how a house works. We know how to fix all the things that go wrong with a house because we created houses, so we understand their principles of operation. We don't yet have all that knowledge about our bodies. We don't have a full understanding of biology, so we can't fix everything that goes wrong. But that's my thesis, that within about 20 years, we will have fully reverse-engineered biology, and we will have the means through biotechnology and nanotechnology to fix anything that goes wrong, ultimately at the cellular level and at the molecular level, 
with nanobots going inside our body and fixing each cell if something goes wrong. And, and uh, that really would enable us to live indefinitely. It's a little bit different than a guarantee. I mean, you could end up in an explosion somewhere or something, but uh, it really will extend our human longevity indefinitely. According to my models, we will be adding more than a year every year to your remaining life expectancy in about 15 years. So as you go forward a year, your life expectancy will move on away from you. And part of making life longer, just as you replace broken or worn out parts of a house, is replacing and upgrading biological components in our bodies. So we'll be replacing at different levels, cells, tissues, even whole organs, with machines that perform uh, much better. Our thinking takes place in the interneural connections in our brain. They're very slow. They send signals using chemical uh, signals which travel a few hundred feet per second. Electronics is a million times faster. So ultimately, we'll be able to re-engineer our bodies and brains to be much more capable. Upgrade, huh? We're going to be upgrading ourselves. Right. So at what point does the upgrade become, rather than us, a machine? Well, how, you know, we have this uh, idea of a machine as something less than us. It's kind of a pejorative. But that's because... The machines we've met are, in fact, much less than human beings. But that's what's going to change because of this exponential growth of the complexity of our technology. Our technology will be as complex and as subtle and as supple as, as our biological friends by the late 2020s, 2030s, and, in fact, be derived from human design. And, in fact, humans are going to incorporate a lot of this technology for better health and better communication and better intelligence and memory. Uh, if you talk to a human being in 2035, a biological human, they're going to have a lot of non-biological thinking going on inside their brain. It's going to be a hybrid of biological and non-biological thinking. And the non-biological thinking will expand because of, of this law of accelerating returns. Not because it's self-replicating, but just, that's just the nature of our technology. It doubles in capability every year. But in my view, it's still human thinking. It's, it's, it's an expansion of our civilization, which has always been a human-machine civilization. That was the second of a two-part conversation we had with Ray Kurzweil, the man. Ray is an inventor and author of the book that explains his vision for the future, The Singularity is Near, When Humans Transcend Biology. Whether or not nanobots in our veins are the future, at the moment, chronic diseases in the U.S. are typically treated with pharmaceutical drugs. Yet, in many cases, as Ray Kurzweil noted, we don't fully understand today how certain drugs work. So, not surprisingly, some accepted treatments, such as those for diabetes or to lower cholesterol, have been in the news recently more for their shortcomings than their successes. And some doctors, even while they believe that drugs can be helpful, also view them with a cautious eye. One such doctor is Jerry Avorn, author of Powerful Medicines, The Benefits, Costs, and Risks of Prescription Drugs. Dr. Avorn, hello. Hello. Good to be with you. Now, you know, some of these latest studies, for instance, those about the cholesterol-lowering drugs or, or diabetes management leave patients, well, flummoxed. I mean, 
Where is there a bottom line to know what we know about drugs and their usefulness and their side effects? Well, the bottom line really is that our way of testing drugs is really pretty limited in that if you can show, if you're a drug company, you can show that your drug makes a lab test look better after a brief period of time in comparison to what a sugar pill does, then you can get the drug approved on, in many instances. And we certainly have seen that with cholesterol drugs and diabetes drugs. And the problem with that way that the FDA evaluates drugs is that what most patients and most doctors want to know is not, will it, you know, is it better than placebo over a couple of month period on a lab test, but will it make me healthier? Will it prevent a heart attack or a stroke or kidney failure? And amazingly enough, the federal government does not actually require that that be demonstrated for an awful lot of drugs that are now on the market, which is why we get these surprise headlines that we've seen. Wait a second. Our Food and Drug Administration does not require that drug companies demonstrate that this stuff won't make us sick in some fashion? That's exactly right, Steve. What the drug company who wants to sell the drugs have to convince the FDA is that it will make, let's say, your cholesterol level look better if you take it for a couple of months compared to taking a dummy pill. And at the moment, unfortunately, that is the standard that the FDA applies for approving drugs, and it does not make the companies go beyond that and say, yeah, but will it prevent heart attacks? Now, to what extent are we being told the truth about the, the research around these drugs by the pharmaceuticals uh, when they, they do do these studies, which you say aren't at a very high standard? Um, how, how often are we told when things don't come out well? Well, that's yet a second problem. So we've got this first problem of really pretty lax standards for approval. And then we've got the other issue of do we even know about the results when they don't meet that low standard? And the the poster child for that problem was the Vitorin uh, story of uh, several weeks ago in which uh, it turned out that the companies that were doing the testing of of their drugs did not find that even... um, the standards of making your arteries look healthier was being met, and somehow it took nearly two years for that result to make its way into the public consciousness because the companies were sitting on the data. So even with low standards, we often don't even get those results in a timely manner. Uh, Jerry, how did we get here? I mean, it's been a conventional wisdom that, hey, you got a cholesterol problem, you should take these statins. Uh, how is it that these, what we thought were tried and true remedies, don't appear to be so. Well, interestingly, we've evolved into a system of drug evaluation that is uh, very heavily influenced by the industry that makes the drugs, just as we have an energy policy that's heavily influenced by the petroleum industry and environmental and finance and other policies that are heavily influenced by those industries and not by what Joe Citizen would expect the government is doing. We just need to have more of the voice of the patient and the voice of the doctor at the table uh, when we're considering how the FDA is ruling on these drugs and not primarily the voice of the manufacturers. You know, I'm mindful of that famous Walt Kelly cartoon where uh, Pogo says we've met the enemy and it is us. Uh, To what extent uh, do our demands as consumers, our impatience as patients uh, to, you know, get a pill to fix something, to what extent does that influence this practice as opposed to maybe other things we should do, maybe, you know, eat healthier food? Right. Certainly, patients play a role here, as do we physicians, in terms of perhaps being more readily persuaded to prescribe things that are advertised as our patients are persuaded to demand things that are advertised. I think greater skepticalness, uh, not paranoia, but skepticalness on the part of patients uh, about what they see 
in, in advertising or even, frankly, in, in news articles uh, would, would be a very helpful antidote to some of this problem. And, and to realize that at the end of the day, how we live has an awful lot to do with our health, uh, at least as much as what, what pills we take, especially for generally healthy people who are just trying to ward off illness. Jerry Aborn teaches at Harvard Medical School, and he's the author of Powerful Medicines, The Benefits, Risks, and Costs of Prescription Drugs. Thank you so much, Doctor. Thank you, Steve. You may be more than ready for this winter to end, and while you look for signs of spring, you might want to lend science a hand. What you do is join Project Budburst, linked to the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research. Their website will allow you to log on and document the emergence of flowers and foliage to track climate change. Among the creators of the website is Dr. Kay Havens, Director of Plant Science and Conservation at the Chicago Botanic Garden. She joins us now from her office in Glencoe, Illinois. Welcome to Living on Earth, Dr. Havens. Thank you very much. So what can blooming flowers tell us about climate change? Well, plants can serve as quite sensitive climate sensors. Um, many plant species respond to temperature by the time they leaf out or the time they flower during the year. And so by looking at bloom time and leaf time, that gives us a good indication of whether or not the temperature is changing in an area. So what prompted you to come up with this website, uh, Project uh, Budburst, where you know just about anyone can log in and document when the flowers bloom in their yard or anywhere they care to look, I gather? Well, Project Budburst is a collaborative effort between the Chicago Botanic Garden, the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research in Colorado, and the University of Montana. We're all members of something called the National Phenology Network. Phenology is the study of the timing of natural events, so things like when do plants bloom, when do birds migrate. And we came up with the idea of Project Budburst. And Project Budburst engages the public, anyone from kids, up to senior citizens to uh, look at when plants are flowering in their yard or their natural area and report that on a website. And an opportunity to become a phenologist, right? That's correct. So how does this website work? I mean, how could one of our listeners get involved in this? You can sign in and become a Budburst member and record uh, your location. And um, after that, you can look at species guides, decide which species you want to monitor, watch them in your own yard, and then log in and tell us the day that they first come into bloom, or you see the first leaf, or you see the first fruit. So how will this data, uh, collected by citizens and then from them, how is this going to be used in the larger study of climate change? Well, we at the Garden and a number of other scientists are modeling how plants will respond to climate change. So we want to know what climate envelopes do plant species survive in. As the climate changes, where might they need to migrate to? And so getting data on bloom time um, is very valuable to use in these modeling efforts. Now, to what extent do you have schools involved in this? We have a lot of school groups who participate. And in our pilot year, we had over 900 observations submitted. And of those, nearly two-thirds were done by children under 12. So this is not just citizen science. This is kid science. This is kid science. And yeah, and we're thrilled to be you know, really engaging kids in collecting data that is important and useful. Now, I imagine you're too busy at this Chicago uh, Botanic Garden to have your own garden. <laughs> I have a small garden. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what's your favorite flower or, or vegetable, for that matter, that you grow in your garden? And how has its blooming pattern changed over the years? Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. Um, I did submit data on um, dogtooth violet and bluebells last year out of my own garden, two of my favorite little native spring wildflowers. And I have noticed um, over the years the springs are coming earlier and uh, getting warmer, and those plants are blooming earlier. Dr. Kay Havens is the Director of Plant Science and Conservation at the Chicago Botanic Garden, which helps run the website Project Budburst. Thank you so much, Dr. Havens. Thank you, and uh, enjoy spring. I will, a little bit sooner than I would have last year. Yeah. (laughs) And you can find a link to Project Budburst through the Living on Earth website, www.loe.org. Coming up, unlocking the dirty secrets of the deep, thanks to the whales. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Gloucester Harbor, north of Boston, is perhaps best known as a fishing port. It's also where the 93-foot catch Odyssey is docked. The Odyssey is a unique research vessel. It's designed to study the behavior and biology of the world's largest and longest-lived mammals, whales. For five and a half years, the Odyssey sailed the seas on a journey to gather baseline data of synthetic contaminants throughout the world's oceans. Now the sailing ship is back in port, and Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman went aboard to find out what researchers have learned so far. All right. <laughs> I'll bring her in when you're ready. All right. It was a cold, blustery day, but the seas were calm as I stepped on the deck of the research vessel Odyssey. Captain Ian Kerr lent a hand. How are you, Captain? Doing good, doing good. You? Fine, thank you. Good, good. Not the best of days. Oh, it's a bit nippy. A wee bit nippy. Ian Kerr was born in Scotland and is CEO of the Ocean Alliance. The Odyssey is owned and operated by the nonprofit, which was founded by Dr. Roger Payne. Hello, Dr. Payne. How are you? Very well. Roger is my name, by the way. Roger Payne is perhaps best known for his discovery that humpback whales sing songs. Ten and a half million copies of the recording were distributed by National Geographic magazine. It's still the largest single pressing in the history of the music industry. Roger Payne and Ian Kerr are shipmates from way back. In 1979, Roger said in a National Geographic article that pollution would replace the harpoon as the next great threat to whales and ultimately humanity. And I met Roger in about 1982, and Roger said, I want to sail a boat around the world and collect baseline data on pollution. And that's 28 years ago Roger was talking about pollution. I feel that this effort to figure out how badly polluted the oceans of the world are is, in fact, the most important thing that I've ever been involved with scientifically. Why did you get interested in whales? Well, I started working on sounds of bats, then went to owls, then went to moths, which are all animals for which acoustics are really very important. And then I began to think, well, I'm just entertaining myself. I'm not doing anything that responds to the problems I could see that were taking the world down the drain, basically. And then I thought, well, if the only thing you know about is the acoustics of animals, what could you do that would matter? And then I thought, ah, whales. 
that would be it, because I knew enough to know that they were had very important acoustic lives. But I had never seen a whale. I didn't know anything about them. And the moment I had that idea, I realized, okay, I'll spend the rest of my life doing that. an acoustic animal well i think roger should talk more to this but we live in a world of sight you know we look around us whales live in a world of sound often the oceans are dirty you can't see more than 10 feet yet roger uh, demonstrated that uh, whales could hear sounds across oceans so you need to understand they live in a whole different world to us But one of the key components of this boat, and it goes back to Roger's history with with the bioacoustics of whales, is we have an acoustic array, a 1,000-foot cable that goes behind the boat. It's about 100 feet down, and as we're underway, there's a screen here in front of the helm. You can actually see images of sounds that are being made in the background, and that enables us to track whales 24 hours a day. And it's really changed the way that we interact with whales and track whales. And what's great about this boat is it's, it's a real tough, deep-water boat. It's got a great extended offshore capability. Because while we know a lot about the pollution in the St. Hudson River or the St. Lawrence Seaway, what's happening in, in the middle of nowhere? So the whole idea is we needed a boat that would be comfortable for the crew. You know, on the old British expeditions, you know, you had to have a couple of people die for it to be a successful expedition. We've evolved slightly from that now. And the truth is, you're more productive. If people can be comfortable, you can be more productive. Now, so you had this five-year expedition. How many whales did you track during that time? Well, you know, boy, I, I don't even think I have an answer for that. But I, I would think thousands. I mean, you need to understand, as we're going along, we're recording whales that we interact with every 30 minutes often, and the boat ran 24 hours a day. So that's one of the challenging components about this voyage is the masses of amount of data we've got. And what's interesting about the data is not necessarily that we've been to places that no one's been before, but we've been with the type of technologies, with the type of expertise and skill sets that haven't been to some of these remotest places on the planet. Amid all that high-tech gear aboard the Odyssey is a device right out of the Middle Ages, a crossbow. To get the physical sample from the whale, we like to do a little biopsy. So here we just have a, a quite a simple crossbow. It only costs us like $100, okay? But it does fire a very expensive dart that's actually made in Finland. And it's got a little rubber head on it. And when it hits the whale, it bounces and pulls out a very small biopsy about the size of an eraser head on a, on a pencil. How does it physically work? You pull this well, we back? Well, yeah, we cock the string back. Slide the arrow in, so you have to find a patch of skin. There's a nice uh, adult sperm whale that is bringing its toxic load down from uh, Antarctica. And you take the biopsy, and the arrow bounces off, and then the boat motors up, and there's a person on the bow that scoops the arrow out of the water. Does it hurt the whale? Well, I don't think so. You know, the skin of these whales is really tough. I mean, these animals are going down to a mile deep. They have really tough skin. I mean, I think one of these arrows, occasionally we fire them, and they bounce off. It's incredible. Had it hit you or I, it would have been stuck in three inches, you know? Do you want me to show you? 
No, no. <laughs> thank you. No. Okay, so let's head up onto the bow now, and I'll show you where we where we stand when we're underway, and and where the the biopsy person works from. Give you a better perspective. You can see these doors are very seaworthy, very heavy. So we're standing up on on the bow now and there's a pole that sticks out from here 35 feet that we call the whale boom. And what we found was, and just think about it in human nature, if I come up behind you, you know, in the street in the evening, you might be a little nervous. If I'm walking beside you, you know, you feel more comfortable, I'm in your periphery. So we found with the whales, rather than coming up behind them, we'd come up alongside of them, and then we could be 100 feet from the whale because the boom sticks out 30 feet, and then when we took the biopsy, you know, this boat is 90 some odd feet long. That's correct. Whale is going to be 50, 60 feet. We've been next to blue whales in the Galapagos that were as big as the boat. It's certainly, you, you understand your place in the wild world when you study whales. You know, we all think it's all about humanity, and yet you get out on the ocean with some of these whales, eyes the size of a grapefruit, little wrinkles, and they're looking at you saying, you know, you're an intelligent species, look at my lifestyle. So I got to ask you, yeah. when somebody's way up on top, do they say, and they see a whale, do they say, thar she blows? They tend to do. You do get caught up in the mystique of the moment, you know. The other favorite one is, of course, land ahoy. When you've been at sea 36 days with nine people in a tin can, you know, listening to the same music, sometimes you're very ready to, to go ashore for some R&R. So on the wall here, we just have the, the general screen to show people that when we collect a biopsy, we cut it up in from five to seven different parts. So here was our sort of workstation. Obviously, we're, we're at dock right now, so we don't have all the, the scientific uh, tools lying out. This is your laboratory? Well, it is our laboratory. We're building a larger laboratory back aft on the boat. But as soon as you get the samples, you want to process them as quickly as you can. So if you think about it, the ocean is, what, seven feet from where we are right now. So we collect the biopsy, and within seconds sometimes, worst case, minutes, we're processing the samples. And Roger will talk to you more about what we do with each of those components. We've looked at a bunch of samples, but we haven't looked at all the samples. That remains to be done if we can ever raise the funds necessary to do that. But what we can say is that these animals are polluted beyond your wildest dreams. They are appallingly polluted. Polluted with what? All sorts of things, including synthetic molecules that human beings make of a huge variety, hundreds of different things. The ocean is downhill of everything on Earth, and the result is that everything flows into the ocean from higher ground, and that means it's the ultimate cesspool, basically, of the world. Industry has always said the solution to pollution is dilution, and it's absolutely true. If you take some poison and drop it somehow into the ocean, or it eventually gets there in streams, it gets diluted down to such low concentrations that, in fact, it is harmless. But then a totally insidious thing happens, and that is it dissolves into the oil droplets that are part of the well, they are the base of the food chain. And so anything we produce that animals can't handle, they then can't get rid of. And the result is they have to store it and they pass it up food chains. We should talk about it too. And maybe if I start this, Roger, and if I do it badly, you'll take over. But we collect this biopsy and we cut it up into pieces. And we get the skin for the genetics, for is it Ian, is it Roger? 
okay? You've then got the, the blubber, which has got fatty acids in it, which tell us where does it feed on the food chain. You've then got the stable isotopes, which tell us roughly where it actually picked up the food that it's got. And then, finally, we've got the blubber that we use for the hard contaminant loads and then the skin that we grow the cell lines for. So this tiny little piece of blubber really demonstrates, one, that you don't need to kill whales to learn about them, and two, provides us with you know an incredible amount of information about where the animal fed, where it lived, where it fed on the food chain. Is it male? Is it female? What things are in the ocean are showing up in these animals that are causing such problems? We're concerned about things like fire retardants. We haven't done any analyses of those. We don't know where they stand yet, but hopefully we'll soon know the answers to that. And we're interested in the other kinds of things that everybody knows is out in the oceans, things like mercury and other uh, metals and uh, persistent organic pollutants, which is a category so large as to be almost useless, but nevertheless a whole series of molecules, which we're looking at a few of. Why the blubber? Why are you looking just at blubber? Many of the substances that we're concerned with are fantastically insoluble in water. They are highly soluble in fats. So what happens is that they end up in the ocean water anywhere in parts per trillion or parts per quadrillion, so hugely diluted. But as soon as they get into fats, they end up in very, very high concentrations because the, uh, the fats can hold lots of them. The trouble is the animals don't have any way of dealing with them, so they store them and then they get passed on when that animal gets eaten by some other animal. So here on your plate is a pound of swordfish. It took a million pounds of diatoms to create that one pound. Not the whole fish, just that one pound. A million pounds is 500 tons. So it took 50 10-ton truckloads of diatoms to make that one pound of swordfish. So you take all those trucks and you park them along a row. It's about 10 blocks long. And to the end of that row, you attach your liver. And with it, you detoxify that entire line of trucks. And that's what you do when you eat a pound of swordfish. And then maybe tomorrow you have another pound. I adore swordfish. I would do anything to have a piece of swordfish except eat it. I think to add to Roger's comment, and, and Roger talked about the generation effect. Each generation of humanity is, is built upon the, the, the toxic debt of the previous. And I think that's really a question we need to ask ourselves sort of as mammals, you know. What is the legacy we want to leave our children? And I think it's really sad that the legacy we're currently leaving is a polluted ocean and a polluted body. And an animal like whales... This is going to get worse and worse and worse from generation to generation because these substances last so long, so much longer than the lifetimes of these animals. And the result is, I assume, a s extinction. What happens now? What, where do you go from here? We are desperately trying to raise the funds necessary to complete the analysis of these compounds. It's in the scheme of things, it's so little money. I mean, it's less than a million dollars that we need. Once we have the funding necessary to complete the analyses of the samples that we've got, we will be able to say, this is how polluted the oceans of the world are with these substances. And the question of why does that matter would be, the answer is very simple. Humanity is about to lose access to fish from the sea because the fish from the sea are becoming too polluted to be eaten safely. It's so sad that there just aren't enough vessels like this out there.
You know, we need more voices from the sea, if, as it were. We really do. There are atrocities going on there daily that people wouldn't put up with, but nobody's out there documenting it. You know, there are plenty of people willing to do it. You know, getting crew is not an issue. It's just that ultimately these crew occasionally need to get paid. I would think that you believe this is the most compelling, important issue of our time. And I'm wondering why it's so hard to raise money around research like this. Ah, what do I ever wish I could answer that question? I don't know. My feeling is there's as many people of goodwill in General Motors as there are in Greenpeace. I think that it's just a matter of contacting these people and getting to know them and that the confrontation between environmentalists and industry is ludicrous. It's a terrible mistake. It accomplishes absolutely nothing. So one of the things that we have tried to do in the past is to work with these people. And when you do, you discover, oh, my gosh, they're fabulously talented and they can do wonderful things. And they just need to know, okay, where's the problem? And then they can help fix it. So this is not a, a us-against-them problem. Oh, absolutely not, no. And and those who make it an us-against-them problem ensure that it is an insolvable problem. Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman and producer Bobby Bascom visited the Odyssey in Gloucester Harbor. Ian Kerr and Roger Payne of the Ocean Alliance use it to study whales around the world. There's a link to their website at ours, LOE.org. And these are humpback whales recorded by Roger Payne. On the next Living on Earth, laughing their way across the desert. We sing songs together. You wouldn't want to hear us. It's just as well we go out there to sing because no one would want to sing. We're just awful. Oh, sometimes Bill start to tell jokes. We might have heard them 20 times already, but it's still funny out there. And then sometimes we see the funny side of what we're doing and laugh at ourselves. You're never too old to walk the Gobi. That's next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in the company of right whales, snoring, recorded by Roger Payne. on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Emily Taylor, and Jeff Young, with help from Jennifer Basler, Sarah Calkins, and Mitra Taj. Our interns are Annie Gia and Margaret Rosano. 
Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.